episode 399 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steph Joe and Johnson. 399, the next episode is 400, and as many of you know, we're going to do it live at noon Eastern on Monday, March 28th. That's a week, or less than a week from today, and you're all invited to listen, to watch, and if we're lucky to ask a few questions, uh, you'll need to dig up the link that we have now posted in our blog posts and our show notes, and then click on that before our noon uh, show begins next Monday. Uh, uh, and when we get here and do that show, we'll again be lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government, and expressing views that don't reflect the opinions of our institutions, our clients, our family, our friends, or we can say next week, even the audience. Joining me today for today's show, Jordan Schneider, uh, who's a China Tech analyst at the Rhodium Group and the host of the excellent China Talk podcast and newsletter. Jordan, welcome. Good to be here, Stuart. Okay. Matthew Hyman, who's a senior fellow and director of planning at the National Security Institute at George Mason, uh, George Mason Scalia Law School. Matthew, good to have you. Great to be with you, Stuart. Okay. And Dave Itell, uh, information security specialist and founder of the Itell Foundation. Dave, it's great to have you too. Thank you so much. And I am Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, the host and chief provocateur for today's program. We're going to be talking Russia, Ukraine, and the cyber issues tossed up by that conflict. And I have to say, it is a cavalcade of paranoia. It's causing us to, to question all of the things that we kind of half questioned and many of the things we believed uh, about our cyber infrastructure. And yet, you know, one of the things we believed is, of course, there was going to be a cyber war. And if you fought with Russia, you were going to fight cyber attacks on a daily basis. That doesn't seem to be quite what's happening, Dave. What is the state of cyber war and how come it's so quiet? Well, it's fair to say that the state of cyber war, as usual, is fairly confusing. And there's two new articles uh, recently out, one from Thomas Ritt of the Alperovich Institute and the author of There Will Be No Cyber War, and then another from Jelena Vivek and RuPaul Mehta in War on the Rocks, which is a pretty, I would say, highfalutin journal on these sorts of things. And they sort of take differing positions. Thomas walked back his title a little bit to talk about there probably is cyber war, but we just don't see he's it. Been, he's been walking that back since he published it. I, you know, I he just <laughs> he, that was just click. That was the publisher's equivalent of quick clickbait. <laughs> it was, and to be fair, I think uh, it worked great. So he got his clicks, <laughs> um, and now he's getting different clicks. And I think what they're saying is that. We don't necessarily see the traditional sort of cybergeddon scale attack that people were warning about, but we also don't know why we haven't seen that. We know that the United States, of course, carefully toes norms and legality lines when it comes to offensive operations. We don't necessarily believe the Russians do the same thing, but that doesn't mean there aren't a lot of sort of conflicting demands on their time or on their policy. And then, of course, you know, you have to put these articles into the context of the announcement that came out yesterday from, you know, Chris Inglis and the team over at DHS and everybody else, uh, and I, I believe from the Biden administration White House itself, where they announced that intelligence has been received that the Russians are, in fact, about to mount an ongoing effort against the United States. Previous, you know, reporting of this type has been extremely accurate, to say the least. 
So I think there's no reason to doubt that this is based on something strong. And, you know, in summary, there's a lag in our reporting, in our understanding of this cyber war, and we may not be seeing the whole picture. So the dogs may be barking and we just can't hear them yet. Yeah, I I think that makes a lot of sense. I also think that for the dogs to bark, you actually have to have a lead time and you have to know what you want. And for whatever reason, the Russians, they may have, uh, it seems pretty likely they attacked Viasat because that was a logical target for a a military operation. But they probably thought they didn't need to do a lot of that. They didn't have to turn off the power because they thought they were going to do a quick strike and be done in a week uh, and they weren't planning for this so um, coming up with cyber attacks that meet their current situation might be a little tricky and they've got other things to do but we are a nice stable sitting duck target uh, and it's just a question of whether Putin says yeah go for it so I think it is pretty likely that they have a whole set of plans and that may be the next thing they do and the u.s is going to have to figure out what's their response a cyber response strikes me as highly likely i think it's also likely that the the response could be military in ukraine this is all about the military fight in ukraine and the question is is it more escalatory to turn off the power in moscow or to strike a bunch of thermobaric missile sites being used against apartment buildings in Ukraine. They might decide, yeah, we're better off taking out the missiles. I mean, the other reaction, of course, from the United States could always be sanctions, which is our standard hammer. I think we've done that. (laughs) I I agree. My guess is we've played that. Okay, then there are also some articles saying... Oh, isn't it great that we've turned a corner and we're going to solve our cybersecurity problems because Congress has passed regulatory language and we're going to get set and and shape up this private sector that has been acting so irresponsibly for 30 years. And, you know, I have a lot of sympathy for that view. I do think there's been a lot of desultory and irresponsible action on the part of the, of the private sector, but regulation brings its own set of problems. And I I think one of the articles you're referring to especially is Patrick O'Neill's over at the MIT Tech Review, where he sort of gathered a lot of quotes, especially from Chris Ng, who has a lot of very strong feelings about moving us forward instead of like having us constantly spin our wheels on security. And it is hard to disagree that we've not exactly succeeded when it comes to protecting critical infrastructure and that regulation may be part of the answer. But it's also true that regulation in this space may not be the answer, that having something that's extremely slow to adapt may not work long term as attackers adjust to it. And, you know, you do have to sort of really carefully try to avoid having your regulations become just a prosperity program for auditors and blinky box solutions that didn't work in the first place when we applied them to every other company. So I think there's sort of a a balance here between trying to get your critical infrastructure up to the level of, say, your financial infrastructure, but at the same time, managing costs, managing, you know, the fact that some of it's just not effective. Like, you know, your financial teams can send infinite money at the problem, and that's not true for your small utilities. 
So there's an interesting story about the objections that the industry, the pipeline industry, has had uh, to TSA's cybersecurity rules. Now, this is a real test for regulation because TSA is not a natural regulator of IT security, but they can draw on CISA, their, their sister agencies, and CISA has to make them successful. They've come up with a bunch of, of regulations. They have an industry that is really pretty resistant to the idea of this new regulatory mandate and is going to play its objections out in the press. And they have been doing that to good effect. TSA has kind of had to say, yeah, we wrote a bunch of rules that work for IT, but maybe don't work for operational uh, technology, which of course is the thing you worry about most on, on pipelines. So that that regulatory effort is really struggling now with the industry saying, you've given us a bunch of a blinky box and auditor solutions and a, a bunch of requirements that will break our pipelines and our pipeline systems, and that they've got a plausible objection there. And TSA has kind of said, yeah, maybe we didn't do this right the first time, which means they're going to go back and have to do it again. And as you say, that's six to 12 months to get there, you know, to pivot on a dime. Well, it's not just that you can make regulations that industry can comply with. Like, that is a good first step to do, obviously. But it's also about making regulations that change the underlying structure of your industry enough that, in fact, attackers are less able to penetrate, right? So, like, if you're not at the back end measuring the effectiveness of your regulations, then what is the point other than, obviously, the, yeah. you know, the auditor you know, lifetime employment program, which I, you know, I'm not too anti as a former auditor. <laughs> now, now, that, now that you're you're an auditor. Yes, I, 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 I think all that is true. I have always thought, well, at least the ransomware guys will give us a rough uh, uh, measure of how we're doing because they attack everybody because uh, they're in it for the money. And uh, if they keep ex successfully attacking people who claim to be compliant with our regulations, there's either something wrong with our enforcement or something wrong with our regulations. No, as always, we're just going to blame it on their like compliance. That's what's going to happen. And yes. you can see the same thing with PCI, right? Like, oh, you didn't completely comply with PCI. Therefore, that's how you got hit. That, it's going to be hilarious. Yeah. All right. So uh, continuing a kind of cavalcade of paranoia, Telegram I By has... the way, Stuart, uh, cavalcade of paranoia is one of my favorite punk rock bands. So just be <laughs> careful about how you talk Terrific. about them. Yeah. I, I will be nothing but respectful. But So Matthew, uh, Telegram is surprisingly thriving in Russia despite the fact that Russia's cracking down on social media and Telegram has become a social media company. And some people are saying darkly it's because Telegram really isn't secure. How is Telegram functioning in the new post-invasion world in Russia? It seems to be thriving. And I think, at least based on the news reports, there's a couple of things people say about, well, why is Telegram continuing to march forward while Russia's sort of throttled Twitter and Meta or Facebook, whatever you call it now. And there's sort of two streams in response. Some say it's because the Russian government's actually afraid of backlash from the citizenry in Russia. About 40 million Russians use it, according to 
latest counts. Others say, well, it's actually because despite the fact that Telegram carries very anti-Russian channels and news feeds, it also carries very pro-Russian news feeds and channels. And some of the Kremlin's biggest backers have very successful Telegram channels. So, and according to one report, those channels are growing faster than the anti-Russian channels. So maybe the Kremlin doesn't want to really squash what is you know, one of its more growth, what is a growth-oriented outlet for its own view of the world. And then to your point, Stuart, some have said, well, it's actually technically difficult to block, and that's why the Russians haven't been more adept. Um, Yeah, the the Russians tried to block it and failed a couple of years ago, so they may be still licking their wounds. They they did, and and then the other sort of school of thought is, the Russians like having a place where they can see what's going on and they point to what the Iranians did in 2017 when they blocked Telegram, which is people just got smarter and more devious about how to hide their communications and it made it slightly more difficult for the Iranian intelligence services to figure out where are, the, where are these uh, conversations happening. But it hasn't happened in it and it certainly sets it apart from the other sort of Western social media platforms. Well, and, and <laughs> maybe they can persuade Telegram to uh, stifle itself by uh, not checking its spam filters. Uh, the, the, there was a, uh, this story rose and fell in the space of two days, but it looks as though Brazil's Supreme Court said to, to Telegram, you're not responding to all our orders. We're going to uh, bar you from the country. And about a day later, Telegram sends in a, a note saying, oh, sorry, we weren't checking our email, but now we're going to do whatever you say for the Supreme Court. Uh, And the Supreme Court said, oh, well, then never mind. A very unusual thing that the Brazilians are, uh, they've got a hair trigger for banning social media, and it seems to be working for them. Yeah, they got very quick compliance from Telegram once Telegram allegedly found the email at the right email account they weren't checking over the weekend. So if we weren't using uh, Telegram, we'd be using WhatsApp or Signal. And uh, there was also a story, Dave, in the Daily Mail, and it may be just wrong, saying that the UK Ministry of Defense had told uh, soldiers not to use WhatsApp. They've sort of denied, but they have said, uh, made statements that suggest that maybe it isn't good for sensitive communications. So uh, where does that leave us? Is WhatsApp secure, insecure, partially secure? You know, so this article in the Daily Mail came out, and what it said was that the UK banned it from the British Army phones for professional use, and some, there's a bunch of, I don't know how to judge the veracity of British newspapers, I gotta be honest, but there's a bunch of sort of links, in theory, to Ukrainian military sites getting missiled, and all of those seem very far-fetched, right? But I do like to read between the lines on some of these reports. So much like we saw the United States government banning Kaspersky back in the day, and then, you know, even now you see additional reporting out on that, which I believe we have in our list for later. Um, Yeah. You know, you have to wonder what's behind some of these things, and it's not always what they say is behind these things. So WhatsApp may be very good at protecting the data using the standard signal protocol via end-to-end encryption and very bad at protecting the metadata that's also being used to initiate calls and text messages. Or it could just be there's a bunch of ODA in WhatsApp. And this used to be a big problem with WhatsApp, and it's why I personally don't run WhatsApp, right? So 
that may be what they're trying to do with these kinds of posts. And it's really hard to figure it out. And I think we should not underestimate the Russian ability to do electronic warfare, to do intercepts, to do exploitation, right? So there may be quite some sort of esoteric vulnerability in WhatsApp that we just don't know about. And I I don't think it's what they posit in the article at all, which is that, you know, there's something wrong with WhatsApp's servers. I don't think that's the case. I think it could be something else that they're, you know, a threat they're trying to warn about obliquely, shall we say. Right. And and if it's being used to geolocate the military groups would make perfect sense. The Russians famously released an app for lining up artillery shots that you could use, that you could download and use, and then used it to identify artillery batteries and take them out in the Donbass. So it, it's quite possible that uh, this is, uh, that WhatsApp is not really good at protecting the geolocation data. Well, so Stuart, me, oh, yep. Oh, so, you know, speaking of social media apps, which must not be named, um, TikTok has been getting a ton of play, both in theater and in sort of foreign militaries abroad. I mean, just like the algorithm now gives me U.S. military TikTok of, you know, 19 year olds doing dances and making fun of their commanding officers and and what have you. And I remember a while ago, I think there was some sort of uh, maybe it was a service directive or a a sort of not to use TikTok, at least on phone. I can't remember whether it was on phones that were carrying military apps or whether they you're just not supposed to use it uh, at all on uh, on basis. But the point is, it's happening all the time, and there are videos that are being made that are getting millions of views. So yeah. it's not like people aren't aware that this is a thing. And, um, you know, we'll get into this later, you know, to what extent there is sort of collaboration between China and Russia on, on, on conducting the war, but sort of geolocation for TikTok users. I mean, that would be like a horrific thing for a uh, country to be, you know, for a company to be doing to folks who use its app willingly. But I think there's definitely a universe where if Russia has figured out a way to, you know, glean something from metadata around WhatsApp, it's completely plausible that the same could be happening in the case of other apps like TikTok. And the company could have deniability. They reported some security problems to their government, and the government just happened to not fix them or ask for fixes, but instead passed it on to the Russians. Uh, this caval- Once this cavalcade gets going, it's, it's really rolling. Well, what about Kaspersky? They've been the subject of paranoia for a long time, but it's been American paranoia, and the Germans have been too sophisticated to fall for that until just this week. I won't even say they were too sophisticated to fall for it. I would say they were on purpose ignoring it. Um, Right. Because they thought we were paranoid. Yeah, they thought we were paranoid. So there's a couple articles out in the press, obviously, CyberScoop. But directly, you can go to BSI, which is the, you know, the German Federal Security Bureau. And they've decided to issue an alert about using Kaspersky products to German companies, which very much to me is like too little too late in the sense here that like, if you're a German company and you've already spent your AV budget on Kaspersky because your government didn't warn you about this and perhaps you don't have anyone who can read the newspaper, are you magically going to find more budget to just go ahead and buy a new antivirus and replace your antivirus? And I know all my friends in the AV industry right now, their salespeople are going ham in Germany right now. So this is right. – people are listening. Um and I just think it's like in the middle of a war is not when you want to be ripping out your antivirus to replace it with an alternative antivirus, but maybe that's where we're at. 
And the other big issue here is that a lot of Kaspersky's business model is white labeling their antivirus engine so that you know you don't even know you have Kaspersky in your network because it's labeled something else. It just happens to have malware scanning built in. And so I would say like hopefully the BSI is offering some German companies real support on these issues and not just sort of like issuing a warning and then that's good enough. And also maybe they should follow the US government's warnings a little closer in the future, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> that's that's the story. And it's sort of an ongoing this Kaspersky thing is there forever, you know? Like it's a ring zero access to everybody. It's a clear and present danger, but there's no, you know, there's no red flag that anyone can point to in clear space. So always, always fun. So at least we can trust open source because many eyes make bugs shallow, right? It, it, it turns out, nope. Uh, RIA Evangelist is it, it, it was a maintainer of a very important networking tool called Node IPC, and he managed to bugger it so that it would start wiping people's drives if they used Russian or Belarusian computers. Is it really that? Is, is this guy that stupid? He Well, I have to wonder about the name RIA Evangelist. And right. like it, I don't know what that means, but it definitely doesn't sound like a name from someone who is completely on the fence about political issues. Let's put it that way. And one of the funny things about this is that it wasn't just that your like computer was running in Russia. It was that you had like an IP address that was in Russia, according to like, you know, one of the many databases out there that that says you're Russian. But those databases are not 100%. So it's definitely possible that a lot of people who were not in Russia had their hard drives wiped because they were using some utility that imported six layers deep this guy's code. And right. it's still up. That's the funny thing. There's a little note on his GitHub page now that says, I got lots of free pizza and a visit from the police, which I, I don't know if he's okay with that. I guess he's fine with it. But you can still download his code, and I assume he can still update the code and do the same thing again to a million people a week, which is how many downloads this thing gets. So I these are real issues. This is like a very bizarre supply chain issue. Just because it didn't affect Americans doesn't mean we're not vulnerable to the same thing. Yeah. So great article by Joseph Cox over at Motherboard on this, but no solutions of any kind anywhere in the close vicinity of the future. Yeah. All right. Well, let's go to the tech companies in China who really face a tough problem, Jordan. I, I, on the one hand, if they obey U.S. sanctions, they're going to be just hammered in, you know, the um, Chinese version of Twitter mobs. And if they don't follow those sanctions, they have the example of ZTE and Huawei and a whole bunch of other companies that have really been hurt by U.S. response to sanctions violations. This strikes me as the kind of untold story so far of the sanctions campaign. Yeah, it's a really interesting one and a story that hasn't, you know, completely resolved or played out um, because even now we're still getting slightly mixed signals, um, both from the firms as well as the, the Chinese government on how they want to play this. Because on the one hand, I think it's clear that Beijing is not 
currently willing to completely throw Russia under a bus saying, you know, this is your war. This is your problem. We're going to let you we're going to let you live and die on your own. But at the same time, you know, we haven't seen the kind of all in no limits support, which, you know, which might have been expected earlier in this war. And, you know, you, you see the Biden administration leaking all these stories saying we have intelligence that Russia is asking China for military and, you know, for serious military and financial support. And that is going to filter and, and how Beijing responds to that is going to filter down very directly into sort of what these tech firms role is going to be in sort of facilitating Russia to continue living a sort of 21st century, continue having a sort of 21st century modern economy from the firm's perspective. Sorry. Just, just that's the, that's clearly the Chinese government's position, but I can't help feeling that they are getting really pushed by Chinese public opinion, at least as expressed, you know, online to be much more pro-Russian. Yes and no. I mean, I think there is this sense now that, you know, there's sort of longstanding animosity skepticism toward NATO dating all the way back to, you know, the bombing in Serbia. And I think like when you don't have a lot of allies, even if Putin's the best one you got, it's kind of comforting, I guess, sort of to know that there's still at least one country that you can sort of that you can get along with. I don't think the sort of, you know, Weibo mobs are out quite as in force for, you know, criticizing Chinese firms for suspending operations in Russia as they would be in different contexts, just because it's like a, it's a less salient thing than Mm -hmm. other stories that have gotten folks really angry, like criticism of Xinjiang or sort of historical fights with South Korea or, or Japan. It's just like, the Ukraine is really far away, and it's not something that, you know, is front and center of a lot of right-wing folks' minds. So I really think the debate is more a sort of Beijing international relations policy one as it is, uh, oh, man, how are we going to balance a sort of folks being pissed at us online? So then that means, I mean, if they do not tell their companies that they are going to be punished for obeying U.S. and European sanctions, those companies are going to have to obey U.S. and European sanctions. uh, And that'll have a really big impact on what China can, uh, what uh, Russia can actually get by way of support. You know, export controls are strict now. I, I expect, you know, a lot of lying and a decade of investigations and enforcement actions against uh, companies that tried to evade uh, uh, sanctions. But uh, a lot of these sanctions are going to have an impact uh, even on countries and supplier chains that we wouldn't think of as particularly friendly to the U.S. Totally. I mean, the cost benefit analysis for any serious global com- global Chinese company, which has ambitions to sell stuff outside of China or sort of or, or directly relies on American or Western technology is to not sell to Russia. Russia is a small market. It's about to go into hyperinflation. You know, I did. I sort of crunched some of the numbers on this. If you look at phone exports for particular uh, in, in particular, you know, it's only. of China's global phone exports. And, you know, a ton of those, a ton of those phone companies are also selling, you know, billions of dollars of phones domestically in China. So to put all of that at risk, you know, to sell a few phones in Moscow and St. Petersburg just doesn't make a lot. So what you've been seeing is a lot is most of the large firms quietly close down stores, pull product launches and, and, and doing largely the same things that you're seeing Western firms do in terms of pulling out. Now, on the other hand, you do have this opportunity for small and medium sized enterprises who, you know, are never going to be able to, to cut it. Um, 
in Western Europe or other developed or even emerging markets around the world look at this as a potential opportunity. Because if Beijing is not necessarily going to completely cut off ties, you're going to start to see dynamics similar to what you saw in China-Iran trade, where you had like the Kunlun Bank, for instance, was like the clearinghouse for all trade. And yes, it was going to get sanctioned, but it was sort of isolated from every other sort of financial activity, uh, international financial activity that China was engaged in such that it didn't pose a real threat. So there are certainly businesses out there that are looking at this as, as an opportunity. You even had the Chinese um, ambassador in Beijing sort of making a statement earlier this morning saying, look, we should fill in the void. And there are definitely firms that can come in and kind of sop up all this, all this latent demand. But at the same time, unless the Chinese government is willing to risk more ZTE Huawei type scenarios, which I'm sure some folks in Washington have been chomping at the bit to do for years and years now. This would give them the perfect excuse to say, that's look. I, that, that I agree with you. That's what we're going to see is people who have been skeptical, just like the people who are skeptical about Kaspersky are saying, I told you so, let's hammer them. People who are skeptical about big tech companies from China doing business here are going to rush to say, we don't need a special regulatory program to decide whether they're dangerous to us, we can hammer them over sanctions and export control violations and make it impossible for them to do business uh, in the long run in the U.S. just by, by making it too expensive. I think we're going to see a lot of that. Yeah. So if I was, you know, if I was SMIC, I would be lobbying my Chinese government context as aggressively as I possibly could, begging them not to force us to sell to sell chips into China. But, you know, Beijing may make the like, you know, it's run by a communist party. Right. And at the end of the day, these companies are for better or worse at the service of political edicts, especially the state owned ones. I, so if Beijing miscalculates and thinks that they can get away with this, they're going to be wrong. And things are going to get a whole uh, remarkably quickly for firms who today rely on American and Western American, not even just Western, uh, rely on foreign developed technology to make the stuff that they are going to be selling into Russia anyways. I, I liked your analogy to Kunlun Bank that there might be a, an effort by the Chinese government to designate sort of sacrifice, sacrificial lambs who will basically go to all the folks who are observing sanctions and say, oh, by the way, I've got a big order. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's going to Poland. And then we'll just divert it all. And yes, they'll get caught eventually and they'll be sanctioned. Uh, and everybody else who sold to them said, ah, I'm just shocked, shocked. That might be a, a strategy. I'm curious, question for you, you three. What do you think is the sort of metabolism of the U.S. government and governments around the world to see this stuff and respond to it. You know, how hard is it to get an understanding of those deals that could be having on? And, you know, what's the sort of like level of deniability that you think sort of researchers and the Treasury Department or commerce it, will be able to push a, through? It's a moderately high uh, intelligence priority. And so there'll be a lot of intelligence efforts to, to identify those sales which will give an impression that the government has a better handle on what's happening than it really does. So we'll see enforcement actions, I suspect, pretty quickly. I, you know, I, I don't think that the Europeans are at all set up to do real enforcement, which they're going to have to do. This, these are their sanctions even more than the U.S. sanctions. And the U.S., you know, our sanctions enforcement teams are 
pretty small. ICE has a few. Commerce has a few of its own. Those are the guys that, that do that, and they are pretty busy already. So it, it, the FBI could prioritize it and probably will because this is kind of a policy opportunity. But I think investigations that are not intelligence-driven might take a while. Uh, you, you bring up the European angle, which I think is a really interesting one to watch over the next uh, few weeks and months. You know, we have the TTC, which ostensibly is supposed to be working on harmonizing export controls and the extent to which Europe seeing this story and wanting to do something and be more aggressive uh, on the Russia context is willing to sort of harmonize more and pull resources and defer to, um, you know, when they get a call from Washington saying, hey, this is a problem, you guys got to deal with it. I think that appetite has increased dramatically since the war began. It, and watching the TTC as the vehicle for a, a sort of boosted up export control effort would be my best bet on how you're going to start to see this play out. So it's worth, while we're on the question of coordinating export controls, we are in the process formally of coordinating all those export bans with Russia, <laughs> which is, belongs to the Wassenaar <laughs> arrangement, uh, uh, was led in, in the uh, full flush of enthusiasm for bringing them into all of the international agreements that we had so that they could be on our side. They ought to be kicked out. It's, it's preposterous. The, the idea was we will keep the rogue nations on the outside and Russia will work with us to isolate uh, uh, Iran and North Korea and they ain't working out either and uh, they'll be on our side but they're as much a rogue nation by the standards of export controls as any and they really shouldn't be at the table talking about uh, what uh, Wassenaar's export control policy should be so hopefully they'll finally get kicked out all right back to China the Chinese, who are very cautious about kind of not pissing off the U.S. government sanctions, have been remarkably unconcerned about that when it comes when they see some guy who used to be a Chinese citizen and used to be a dissident uh, Tiananmen uh, demonstrator running for Congress. They're pulling out all the stops and their people have all now, many of them, been busted for trying to discredit a former Chinese citizen who's running for Congress. Matthew, th this is a great story for the Justice Department to have caught these guys and sort of a remarkable statement about where China thinks it can act despite what it must know is going to be a bad reaction in the U.S. Yeah, and I think it also betrays just that fundamental paranoia that the Chinese you know, government has around anything related to pro-democracy, Tiananmen, anyone that's taking a view of the world that's not aligned with theirs and is a Chinese or former Chinese national is going to be a target for their activity. And so friend of the podcast, Stuart, Mr. Olson, Matt Olson made an yes. announcement this week about the five arrests. Three of these folks Two of them were Chinese nationals. One looked to be an American that was cooperating with them, were doing things to try and smear dissidents and interview them in gotcha ways and try and twist what they're saying. So they got charged. And then, as you mentioned, Stuart, there was a another individual that was trying to smear a Democratic candidate on the eastern end of Long Island that's running for Congress, and that person was a leader, a student leader in Tiananmen in 1989, and so that person got arrested, and then there was a fifth, so there were three in the first event, fourth with the congressman, and then a fifth was arrested 
uh, for sending information about pro-democracy activists to the Chinese secret police. And so I just, I think it just, as I said, it betrays this fundamental paranoia that China has about anyone that is a former or current Chinese national that espouses a view that's pro-democracy is going to receive their attention almost to the point where they're shooting themselves in the foot. Jordan may have a view on this and he can tell me I'm all wet. I think there's some, this is a definition of what is in a Chinese internal matter versus an external matter that has its roots in, in what I can only describe as profound racism. That if you are Han Chinese, if you're descended from Han Chinese, you are an internal security matter for China. No matter if you've had three generations in the United States, you're still Chinese and they'll treat you differently from real foreigners. And that's why they felt more comfortable doing this to Chinese in the United States. So Jordan, am I crazy to think this? No, I, I think you're I think you're broadly on the right track. I guess a few things I'll say is like, you know, this stuff can backfire, right? I'm sure this story is gonna now be on the mailings of all of these candidates' postings going forward. And this is the sort of thing that can really you know, raise your profile if you're yes. um uh, if you're running a campaign. So, you know, it, it not super surprising that the, the sort of Chinese government and state security organs that are in charge of doing this, like, don't quite understand how uh, U.S. politics works. I'm going to move us to China's contribution to artificial intelligence ethics, which sounds like it might be an oxymoron after all the uh, uh, crap we've given the Chinese government uh, on this. But in fact, what they're doing in AI ethics is surprisingly mainstream. It's got some weirdness too, but you can't just dismiss it as a joke. Yeah, so I guess I, I think you're, what you're referring to are these algorithmic regulations, um, yep. which CAC, which first promulgated like way back in 2016, revised in January and went into effect a few weeks ago, is the Chinese government's you know first effort at regulating algorithms, which is a very hard thing to do from a sort of capacity standpoint. I mean, this organization only has 200 people. Like, I don't know what sort of like outputs the, you know, what data they're expecting to see. Is it really just going to be folks scrolling on their phone? And when they see something that's upsetting, they'll be like, these regulators will be like, oh, that's bad. We're going to find you a few hundred thousand uh, renminbi. It, it, it's a tricky thing. But, you know, I think that what's written in the regulation itself is not super surprising. You know, companies have to be transparent with, with their users about using algorithms. Uh, right. Users should be able to sort of change keywords um, that they're tagged by when getting, you know, receiving targeted advertising and, and content or whatnot. You know, you also have kind of classic stuff like uh, you shouldn't be, algorithms shouldn't be promoting like stuff that undermines state security or is or is sensational. There's uh, protections for the elderly, which is something that uh, the Chinese government has been leaning into a little more than what mm. you've seen in the US and EU so far in trying to uh, sort of build in explicit protections in these technology regulations for, you know, exploiting older folks who are less sort of sophisticated on what's being advertised and uh, and sold to them. You know, as with all these as with all these Chinese regulations, it's really going to depend on the the enforcement and to what extent CAC is able to do is able to like actually build real algorithmic oversight as opposed to just finding folks every once in a while when they come across sort of stuff that goes viral that they don't think should. 
Yep, I, there's a lot there, and we aren't going to be able to, to cover it all. The Chinese are really engaging in on things like explainability, which is you know we definitely need more and better research on AI explainability, and so that's a point where if the Chinese get there first, we'll be unhappy, and so we should be putting a lot of effort into it. And so it will be fascinating to watch as they struggle with a surprising number of issues that are also legitimate issues on this side of the Pacific. I, I wanted to go back to the big appropriations bill, which everybody congratulated themselves for getting through, and it had uh, cyber incident reporting, and everybody was pat patting themselves on the back over that. And then, you know, people started to read it, and they, if you got to page... 2,334 of the appropriations bill, you found something that uh, Dave and I have talked about before, and it's been modified, but it's still a, an astonishing impact on the people who are in the uh, cybersecurity industry. Dave? And, and what you're referring to here is Section 304, Requirements for Certain Employment Activities by Former Intelligence Officers and Employees. And it's an extreme, it's not that long, but it's an extremely broadly written part of the bill. And it comes from the Project Raven story that Chris Bing broke back in the day. And the theory here is that we don't want U.S. people who are hackers for the U.S. government to go work for the United Arab Emirates doing bad things to people that we happen to like. Um but to solve that, we have this language now in this bill, which makes it a five-year criminal penalty for basically anybody with a clearance that is designated by Dernsa, for example, as, you know, one of the people covered under this bill. And that could be That's a the director board. of the director of national security of the National Security Agency for people who never worked there. Yeah. Oh, sorry. sorry. Yes. And it could be like you could be a contractor, you could be a government employee, you could be in the military. And what you wouldn't be allowed to do is for 30 months after you leave government service or whatever your job was, you wouldn't be able to go work for any company that is funded, as they say, in whole or in part or in major part by any foreign government. And that language is very confusing, right? So I would say that Riot Games, for example, which is wholly owned by Tencent, which is funded in major part by the Chinese government, would be covered under this law. So if you were a former TAO employee at the NSA and you wanted to just go into some gaming and just go work for Riot, making games, not even doing security work, although it is, actually, let's say you're doing security work, because I think that is covered in the bill, you wouldn't be allowed to. And there's so many issues here. Like, I just don't think many private companies are going to tell a new employee where all their funding comes from. They may not even know where all their private equity funding comes from. And so they may be off limits to former government employees. I think it, it's a really broadly written bill. It's really confusing. It Like, all the employees are getting thrown under the bus, essentially. And it's, you know, they say they're going to build the regulations in 90 days. I don't know if that's going to happen, but... No, that's not going to happen. That's a joke. That's a joke. Uh, yeah. But it's not a funny joke if you happen to work at one of these agencies. Yeah. So I think that these things, you know, I know that there was a lot of pressure to get something to handle the Project Raven issue. But when you rush a bill like this, you have all these implications, and now you have to explain it. That's what's happening now. Mostly I just wanted the story in here so I could ask you what was going on. 
Yeah. So yeah, it does remind me, I think I used to hear this when I worked at the, the agency. If you want it really bad, that's how you'll get it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And we don't know how this is going to roll out, I guess. But, you know, I'm not a lawyer, but I don't believe that, you know, there's any legal definition to some of these terms, like major funded and major part. I don't believe that's nope. a legal term of art. So just just after, I was just looking at this yesterday again, and I realized, you know, this the people the institutions you can't work for without a waiver are covered by this language. It's very broad. It includes directly or indirectly supervised by uh, any government of a foreign country. Well, you know, Deutsche Bank is directly or indirectly supervised by bank authorities in Germany. I'm sure that's not what they meant, but the language is very clear. And so the regs are going to have to go through a whole bunch of things. And as, as you say, these are very young people in many cases coming out of the intelligence agencies where they've been doing really important work in offensive cybersecurity work. And they're going to have to figure out or the agencies are going to have to give very clear guidance about who they can and can't work for because it's not just that there are some a few uh, subsidiaries of foreign governments recruiting. If you go to work for Mandiant, they're going to get called to respond to crises, cybersecurity crises in a hundreds of different companies and you have to have a list that says, oh i can't go there oh i, I can't go there either and you know mandy it's going to say yeah maybe you can't work here and, and and so there's a significant problem i suspect with how this impacts on people who are in the industry and i think the answer that you're going to get if we ask is going to be we're going to do selective enforcement massive selective enforcement but i, yeah. I just don't feel like that's a great answer is to, to be honest yeah. I, and I will say, I uh, having remembering what I saw in the first draft of this, which we did get to talk about uh, a couple of months ago, and what's in this one, there were clearly some changes, but the changes I recognize are changes that essentially took the management of the intelligence community off the hook, made it easier for them to comply with the requirements, made them less responsible for policing their employees after they left, and if anything, made it harder on the individuals who will be leaving the intelligence community. You know, it, it, there's, a, there's an element of the intelligence community, legislative affairs guys, selling out the employees of those agencies in order to make sure that they didn't have any burdens to bear. I, I, I may be wrong about that, but I, uh, that's how it feels. And I'm going to look a little more closely because that's really not the way uh, an intelligence agency that lives and dies by the loyalty of its uh, employees should treat them. Recruitment's hard enough. It's also not the mark of an agency that's interested in attracting talent in if right. you know that you're blocked when you're ready to leave, it's just short-sighted on both sides of the fence. Yeah, but the, and the problem is they know that this is a real problem. They need to address the problem that we can't have people going out and becoming uh, samurai to work for whoever uh, wants to attack allies of the United States. And so they were on their back foot. I suspect that Chairman Schiff pushed them to their even further because of that and maybe inappropriately to accept a bill that would be that he could call tough and it is tough but it's unfairly tough i suspect to a lot of people um all right i 
last, I thought I'd introduce an op-ed that I just finished uh, for Wired. Uh, this is one thing we can do. This is one really nerdy thing we can do to attack the Russians for their uh, invasion of Ukraine. It turns out the Soviet goddamn Union still has a country code domain <laughs> on the Internet. It's like they got the domain in 1990, uh, and by 1991, they were gone as a country. Everything is gone except the damn country code, which lingers on in part because people are nostalgic for the Soviet Union and they want to be able to register Stalin.su as an indication of where they stand in the world. And probably the guy I suspect most interested in registering Stalin.su is in the Kremlin right now. And so it seems to me a perfectly fair symbolic thing that says, <laughs> hey, you know, Putin, you reminded us what we hate about Russian imperialism and we're just not going to have it anymore. We're going to get rid of .su uh, completely. So that's my proposal. We'll see if we can, you know, I'm trying to move ICANN, which is like moving 12 tons of sludge. It just surrounds you and slowly seeps into your pores. And before you know it, you're just part of this process. But I, with luck, I did pr propose some things that the government could do, that Google could do instead of just uh, surrendering to the sludge. So maybe we can uh, uh, get rid of .su, which should have gone away 25 years ago. All right, quick hits. Uh, you remember the peanut butter uh, spies who had all that uh, nuclear sub technology that they hid in a peanut butter sandwich? They had surprisingly good OPSEC, except, you know, that they were getting all their OPSEC from the FBI. Now we know that the one mystery was who were they trying to sell those nuclear secrets to? Matthew, we know. Yeah, and it's a great roundabout story because the couple agreed that they felt like it would be morally wrong to sell the secrets to the Chinese or the Russians. And so they thought, well, let's sell it to someone that's not an enemy of the U.S. in a formal sense. Let's sell it to the Brazilians. And the Which Brazilians kinda, immediately... I, I, you know, that's kind of cute. I, I, yeah, I, I, it I, is. <laughs> and the Brazilians, to their credit, immediately went to the FBI with the letter and said, hey, we got this. How can we help? And they did help. But the funny thing is the Brazilians are working with the Russians on sub-technology. So, yeah. you know... There you go. All right. So there it is. I, I, I think that story, we can just, we can close it up. It was bizarre from start to finish and remains so. All right. That's it for episode 399. And of course, 400 is going to be a lot of fun. I've already had people on Twitter respond that they're going to come for the heckling. And uh, I, 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 I highly recommend that you come for the heckling. We'll try to make sure that it happens in the chat room and only occasionally and when really funny. Yeah. Uh, on uh, the Air, Stuart, but, can you yep. can you do like the live stream thing where you can like pay 10 bucks and like get to throw a virtual tomato at you? I think that is really what we got to set up. I, for episode I am happy to do it. I'll, and if we can do that, uh, I will pledge all the proceeds to a Ukrainian national relief. So let's find out whether we can do it. And the tomatoes uh, will be 10 bucks a pop. All right. In the blog post, in the show notes, you can find the link. Use the link just at noon on Eastern, and then we'll record the show and allow people to ask some questions, assuming the tech allows us to do that. And it would be great to hear in person from most of our fans. <laughs> uh, Jordan, Matthew, David, thank you so much. It's been terrific. Anybody who wants to send us feedback, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com, leave us a rating. 
thanks to Weissman Sound Design for the music. This has been episode 399 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Mm-hmm.